As a passive investor, you may not be picking markets like your sponsors and you may not be underwriting deals like they are, but you should still understand how your sponsor picked their market and how they underwrite their deals that they're looking at, what their projections are, what their expenses are projecting to be, and how they feel rent growth will happen. In this episode, I sit down with Joe Olis, who manages thousands of units all across multiple states, and he talks about their approach to finding markets, underwriting deals, and as a bonus, even talks about the next asset class that he is extremely excited about that fits right in between single family and multifamily investing. This is the Passive Real Estate Strategies Podcast, where we educate career-driven individuals who have tapped out their earning potential, learn about passive real estate investing so you can continue building your wealth without compromising your time or taking on more responsibilities. I'm your host and managing partner at Realm Investors, a multifamily syndication group who has helped multiply millions of dollars for our passive investors. Thanks for tuning in and let's get on with the show. Hey investors, welcome back to another episode of Passive Real Estate Strategies. Today, I am sitting down with Joe Olis. Now, Joe is the Chief Investment Officer for the Peak Group and is a key thought leader in real estate investments, portfolio construction, risk management, underwriting, and due diligence. Joe, we're really, really excited to have you here on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to be talking with you today. So tell us a little bit about the Peak Group. Well, what's uh, what's your game? Do you guys like to do multifamily, single family, all sorts of alternative investments, or give us kind of the overview of what you guys specialize in? Sure. Yeah, we are a vertically integrated single family rental platform. So what that means is we have a privately traded REIT that owns and operates approximately two thousand homes in the Dallas Fort Worth through the south of the United States. We have a property management company, a title company, a maintenance company, and a new construction company. So we're fully vertically integrated. Man, you're just missing the brokerage office. Got to get to the top of the funnel. No, but that's great. So you're you're a pri- uh, privately owned REIT. And so what is your role within the company? What does your day-to-day look like for somebody in your position? Yeah. So think of me as the fiduciary to take care of the investor's best interest. So I work very closely with investors and I uh, then help them come in and choose the right strategy for investing in single family rental products. And then I am the chairman for the REIT itself. So I help direct the asset strategy, what markets we go into, what we purchase, how we manage cash flow, how we manage debt, and how we try to do the best services we can for investors. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about that. So you do, it sounds like um, the translation for all that sounds like a lot of research, a lot of numbers, a lot of spreadsheets and projections. So you decide first and foremost, I picked up on where you you guys will invest next. Is that what it is? That's, that's right. And okay. I, I am married to Excel. It is my favorite application and I live about 24-7 in, yeah. in Excel. Yeah. That's what you want guys in that role to be. So, so I love that. So you pick you know, kind of stepping back a little bit, you pick the markets that you're going to go into next. So what type of metrics do you look at? I think a lot of investors, you know, they know the big hotspots, the Dallas's, the Florida's, the Phoenix areas, but what else are you seeing within that role? Are there other markets that excite you or are you still kind of waiting for something to emerge that that gets you guys um, to move to a different location? No, I think a, that's a really good question. So I, uh, a good real estate operator, and that could be an individual investor or even a big company, 
as a good mix between what I call a bloodhound who can just smell out a good deal and see a good deal and an analyst, somebody that can take a good deal and really, really identify what will make it successful. I feel like with the Peak Group, we have a good mix of that. So we use data to really identify super simple trends. These are things that I think anybody could identify to see that Dallas is a growing market with a lot of job growth and population growth and higher average incomes. The same things can be said for many markets in Florida, Charlotte, North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, you name it. It's all there. Where we mix that, though, is really some boots on the ground knowledge. So we like to go in and partner with teams that understand the market very, very well. In Dallas-Fort Worth, for example, we know exactly where we want to be building new product and delivering new product based off of school districts and neighborhoods and, and things like that. Got it. And so so right now, is, is are you primarily focused in Dallas or are you in a lot of those other markets as well, the Floridas, the Carolinas, and um, Georgia? Are you all over? Are you pretty, pretty centrally located in Dallas right now? So right now, 65% of our portfolio is in Dallas, and we also have some markets as spread through Georgia and Alabama. And yeah, but our primary focus is definitely Texas for, for a lot of the growth reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So what are you seeing in terms of those big explosive markets? You know, I think some of the feedback that that uh, investors and maybe even guys like you might hear is like, hey, I'm looking for good deals out in these markets, but there's just so many investors in here. It seems like you know prices are getting bid up so high. Like the yield is just you know I don't know if I can really get as aggressive on our offers. You know, are you seeing that with any of the markets where you might foresee, hey, maybe in, in a couple of years we might not be able to buy so much anymore in certain areas because it's just going to get bid up so much that maybe we want to look on to the to the next market. Are you seeing a lot of that, or are you guys still really really confident in, hey, these are the markets and we're here to stay probably for the very long term? Yeah, that's a great question. So first and foremost, I think the market has significantly shifted even in the last three months, and we should totally talk about that. But for a big market like Dallas-Fort Worth, it is hard to compete because of all the institutional equity and all the investors that are going after the same asset classes. So you're right. Like We did see a big bet up in terms of price appreciation. But the same thing could be said for a lot of other markets that have continued to grow. So I, I'm based out of Seattle, Washington, and I started investing in real estate clear back in 2011. And you know what was the one asset class I didn't buy? Multifamily. Do you yeah. know why I wasn't buying multifamily? Because it seemed too expensive clear back in 2012 and 2013. So, you know, it's all about the framework of what you're trying to measure and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. But in general, I do think that there's a lot of competition out there right now. And so when you're looking at different uh, locations, is that something that you consider like, hey, what's the competition in this area? Or are you maybe in, in uh, are you maybe enticed by markets that maybe aren't growing as fast, but the caveat is they're maybe still growing or they're still pretty consistent, but there's not as much institutional money that you're competing against, which sometimes even have lower cost of capital. So they can even afford to pay more sometimes. Do you look at the competition? Are you hyper-focused on, hey, I will cover you know, job growth, population growth, and we kind of feel like those two metrics can, can really sail uh, a lot of our investments? Yeah, no, you actually caught a really good strategy, which is something that we're employing. So I want to use uh, Greenville, South Carolina as an example. So everybody knows Charlotte, North Carolina is a hyper-growth market. It's where all the institutional money is going. It's a great area to deploy capital if your, your cost of capital is low. Well, Greenville, South Carolina has seen that same hyper growth, 
it's a much smaller market. It has the same kind of demographics and you know political environment that makes it a good multifamily investment market, but you're going to see higher yields. Mm-hmm. And you might see less cap rate compression and less institutional investment long-term, but as a smaller investor, it's a great place to be, be looking at investing. Yeah. And I think that primarily is just a secondary or even slightly tertiary market investment strategy. Okay. And so a lot of the deals, so let's say you're in that primary market, like the Dallas areas where, like we talked about, there's a, there's a lot of competition, a lot of institutional cash there. Are you guys still seeing good cash flowing deals? Or at this point, are you buying more so on the appreciation side? Or how have you seen, I guess, returns change over the years that you've been doing this, uh, where maybe in certain markets you could get some pretty good cash flow, but now maybe the appreciation sort of outweighs that? Or how have things changed over the past couple of years? And what are you seeing as returns today in some of these major markets that you look for? Yeah. Well, I think we're very uh, fortunate in that we are forced to be deploying equity or deploying our capital at all times. So we have a very simple metric, and this is something that all investors can really think about, is when you look at the value of real estate that you're paying today, how much rent growth do you have to assume to have a pro forma that makes sense? And so in early January 2022, we started to see price acceleration up into what we now realize is probably a peak pricing in in mid-March of 2022, where the average offer was assuming two years of rent growth of nine to 10% to make their pro forma work, to make a, you know, a four and a half cap purchase on two years of rent growth. And to me, that was just ludicrous. And it's a pretty simple strategy. But we stopped buying. We haven't bought anything since January 2022. And that's primarily because the pricing just got so out of whack. Yeah. And so what is your position now? So so we're recording this, of course, January 23 now. So it's been about 12 months um, of you guys not buying anything uh, at all or just in the major markets? Uh, we haven't purchased anything at all. A couple of things here and there, but very, very selective. Okay. And so what type of, what is stopping you from purchasing? Because I assume if there is a deal that comes out that, that kind of makes sense or that pencils well for you that you would, you would take advantage of it. What's the biggest obstacle? Is it maybe a cash metric? Is it just that you're, you're just not even close to what these properties are selling for? Like you guys just can't get competitive at all. What type of metrics are you looking at that you're just not able to really find, at least in the last 12 months? Yeah, it's a, it's a really simple equation. So think about it this way. If you are a uh, seller or an owner of real estate today and you're producing good cash flow and you're not in a stress situation, you're not going to be selling because there's no way to deploy that capital again in an efficient way and you already have a good position. So that causes less and less buyers to be out in the market, in which case also the other aspect of that equation is in the sales price, what what price are you going to achieve if you do go to market to sell? And the problem that we have is that interest rates today for any kind of capital that you have to uh, you know use with debt is now nearly double what it was at the beginning of the year. So prior, we were receiving 4% rates on our mortgages. Now they're the around 8%. Well, yeah. that impacts home buyers as much as it impacts institutional groups. We can't go out and buy a four cap property anymore and have a cash flow. So we have to buy a six cap property. Well, nobody's selling anything at six cap. 
And so there's this kind of price discovery period that we're still going through, which is effectively nobody's selling and nobody's buying. Yeah. And so who who has been, so there's still deals, you know, me and you may classify deals as differently from when we see other investors buying things because we've lost out on deals that we just at the end scratch our hand and go, I don't know how the hell that that group beat us. What are they, you know, what's the game plan there with them? What are you seeing as that game plan? Because like you said, guys like us are in a position where we're saying, hey, I can't afford to buy this, you know, this four cap property when rates are seven, eight percent, but somebody is. Mm -hmm. And so when you when you see investors or institutions buy that, what exactly is their plan with that? You know, are they cash flowing? Are they just really banking on that appreciation over the next few years to continue? Why do you feel some people are still able to make some of those deals work when when guys like you and I are, are just not able to to pay that much? Yeah. If you're sitting on cash right now and you have the ability to go deploy it, you can find some good deals in the marketplace. You can purchase all cash in the anticipation of interest rates eventually lowering, allowing you to put on of, you know, liquidating some of that equity to redeploy. So most of the the offers we've been seeing come through have been those kind of cash offers, and it's a great time to be a cash buyer. Yeah, yeah. So we we've been dealing, we've been working with a few investors that are like that as well, where the goal is to buy cash, and then two to three years or so, when we should anticipate rates will fall, just historically speaking, um, to refi that out. So th that is a strategy that I'm really glad you pointed out. So. I want to move on to another topic now. So the topic of underwriting, which is just guys like us have been having to re-underwrite and re-underwrite in different scenarios as months and go by, and even as weeks go by. You know, tell us about your approach to underwriting properties and how has it changed maybe over the last few, I used to say years, but maybe even the last few months at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, to me, underwriting boils down to your cash yield on deployed equity. And so you have a lot of different variables and levers that you're pulling in there. The biggest lever that's changed, of course, in 2022 is the cost of your debt and the assumptions that you need to use for go forward rent growth and go forward expenses. So when I start with underwriting, we, we literally start with the asset by asset look of that asset's potential rent and that asset's expenses. We use a lot of standardized assumptions because we operate a lot of real estate. So we know generally what repair and maintenance will cost for a certain vintage of an asset of a home or, or building. But the big ones that everybody needs to watch out for are insurance and taxes. Yep. And I can tell you property taxes is the number one thing that screws up everybody's pro forma long term. And that was the one that really bit us in Texas in 2022. Hey, investor, really quickly, if you're enjoying the show, please, please, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review on the platform you're listening on. It really does help us reach more people just like you who want to build their wealth without taking on more responsibility or sacrificing more hours. It's one of the greatest compliments a podcaster like me can receive. Thank you so much in advance. Yeah. I've heard that that was a big thing in Texas for a lot of investors. I don't know if they may were maybe just getting more aggressive there because we don't invest in Texas. But that was a common thing that I heard um, across other investors in Texas that property taxes were really starting to hit them hard. Is that a specifically a, a state thing there? Did they just get more aggressive or what was happening? Yeah, it's a, so this is a little bit of a subjective comment, but I'll give you the objective measurement. So 
our property taxes on a dollar by dollar basis. So literally cash flow out of our pocket increased 23%. Wow. So if it was $100 one year, it's $123 the next year. It was atrociously bad. The subjective measurement to that was during COVID, a lot of municipalities, including those in Texas, stopped reevaluating real estate and did not increase valuations. They did that during 2020, 2021, and they finally caught up in 2022. So you did see a tremendous amount of appreciation in the market during that time that wasn't captured during 2020 and 2021, but finally caught up in 22. So we weren't the only ones to be surprised by that. And the metric we use, so we we have a service that actually appeals 100% of our property taxes. We did that on all 2,000 of our homes, and we only had a reduction of around 2%. So it was bad. It was a really bad year. It's, it's, it's much more common for you to get some pretty decent movement on a lot of those appeals, but it's not like they just really strictened up. So how do you... How can you, if at all, plan for something like that? Or, you know, going forward, is that something that you can really foresee? How do you guys account for that, but still be kind of realistic on your expenses? Or how has that really changed the way that you approach new acquisitions? You know, with a, the property tax kind of bite that we realized, we weren't the only ones. Invitation Holmes, who owns 85,000 doors, had the same surprise, unfortunately, for 2022. But I would, I would caution investors to be pessimistic when underwriting expenses in terms of those the growth that you might expect going forward and especially with insurance i don't think that we're going to see much innovation in the insurance marketplace over the next five years to lower those costs as well yeah yeah texas got hit hard with the taxes and the the freezes so it was a double whammy there so good thing i mean at least there was a lot of appreciation to to carry a lot of that which Hopefully, you know, if you were underwriting, then you weren't banking on that appreciation because then you really didn't have, have room to absorb a lot of these things. So so when people are, the investors are out there. So a lot of people who listen to the show are totally passive, which I think it's great that they understand how operators are underwriting and how operators are picking markets to essentially deploy their cash. So what is the benefit that you see to a lot of single families versus a lot of people when they're in a position like the peak group? They say, man, we have a ton of single families. I wonder if we can just consolidate and, and do multifamily or do you know 200 unit plex instead of 200 single family homes. What is the benefit that you've seen with sticking to the single family model? Yeah, it is pretty funny. Most people graduate from owning a couple of homes or a duplex to buying an apartment complex. And it, it certainly is because of the economics of scale. You think about like, well, one roof over 10 versus 10 roofs. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. There's been enough innovation in software for the management of single family to have a very similar economics of management of multifamily. And that really truly has what made this asset class institutional. But where we're focusing after you know multiple years of running a pretty large portfolio now is we see that there's this middle ground, which are these built for rent communities. And those really look and behave like multifamily complexes. And we're seeing them be more desirable than the big multifamily kind of podium style apartment buildings. So as a go forward strategy for the peak housing REIT, because we're a construction company and because we also are operators, we're going to have a lot of focus on these build for rent communities. Got it. And so is that something that you are seeing a lot of investors favor as well? Um, And how do the build to rent communities, I I guess... 
differ from maybe like a single family portfolio or possibly as a standardized multifamily asset from a, the passive investor or the investor who's putting money into the REIT uh, from their perspective? What could they expect in terms of what's different, whether that's better, worse, pros or cons, or however you like to structure it? Sure. I think uh, to me, a, a multifamily complex is typically going to be catered towards a shorter renter. And you're going to see, you know, typically kind of the, the class A amenitized type apartment complexes that are highly desirable mm-hmm. for a higher rent and for, you know, a, a renter that will be there for one year to two year. With a built to rent community, you have these single family homes. The true amenity of those is that you have your own garage to park your, your toys or your cars and you have a yard to have your dogs running around in the backyard. And that's becoming much more desirable for the generation that grew up renting apartments. They now want that extra space. So we find that once somebody goes into these homes, they oftentimes will bring a family or start a family, in which case it becomes very sticky because they have the the kids in the school districts. The school districts might be really good and you want to stay in them. might be very hard to afford house in those school districts, but you can still be a renter. So we're seeing an average... Uh, length of stay over two years for most of our our single family homes. That in turn lowers the economics in terms of repair and maintenance in turn, which we believe long term will allow these built friend communities to outperform multifamily. Interesting. Wow. So I really, really like the value here. I love talking about you know the markets and the underwriting and what you guys see as the future with maybe shifting to the build to rent uh, model and how it kind of differs from some of the other classes that are really, really popular. So I mean, Joe, this has been a phenomenal show. Really love all the value that we had here. How can people get a hold of you and who should maybe reach out? Yeah, sure. Well, I love talking and uh, um, helping educate people. Our website is thepeak.group. And you can always find me on LinkedIn directly at Joe Aulis. And you can reach me just through my email. I'm always happy to set up time and, and talk with people. And I'm just Joe Aulis at thepeak.group. Perfect. So listeners, we're going to put all of Joe's resources in the show notes. Of course, while you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free book, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies. Joe, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fantastic episode. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're looking to learn more about passive real estate investments, make sure you head to our show notes and download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies, where we reveal the ins and outs of the truly passive ways to invest in real estate. We'll see you on the next episode.